0: So, maybe you're a crazy person, like me, who has over 400 reigns, and you want to name them all. Or maybe you love creating new characters for D&D. Or maybe you just really like learning the meaning and origins behind some of your favorite nerdy character names from pop culture. Well then, it sounds like you need Naming Your Little Geek by Scott Rupp. This is an incredibly fun and easy read. It taught me not only is Ulrich the name of a war god, but also a Sith master. It also comes with one more added benefit. It's a great resource for naming your babies follow the link in the description below and pick up your copy of naming your little geek today all right so this may end up getting cut this may end up only in the patron feed i may i don't know this is just this is the conversation i want to have on the record because it okay. makes me laugh okay so recently i have been painting up all 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 of my uh, game of thrones miniatures for that little war game yeah i and saw i've seen me, some of your pictures that's a lot of fun it, Put me in like a Game of Thrones headspace. All right. And I was sitting there thinking, it's like if I had a small council of our friends, who would I put on there for okay. like the various positions? Yeah. And this actually turned out to be really fun. And I'm going to read off, you know, my choices. I want to see what you think. Okay. So for my grand master, I got Sotek. Sure. Like I really recommend. Like I don't know of our guests, like frequent guests. Who would love just, like, a, you know, gathering knowledge and just being treated as, like, a stand-in wizard?
1: I mean, I personally would have put Chippa there, probably, but because that's a lot of our stuff with him is knowledge. He came stuff. close.
0: Like, like, well, he's an engineer, which is kind of like a maester, but I had another slot for him. Okay, go on.
1: Uh, Sotek is reasonable, too, but, again, it's Sotek bringing us information, so, sure.
0: That's why I thought like, if I have a question, who would I go to? It would be Sotek, and he yeah. would give me total bullshit and be like, You know what? That sounds right. True.
1: I I mean, when it comes to Warhammer Fantasy or Age of Sigmar, if Sotek tells me, I I take it as gospel, essentially.
0: That's like, you know, I'm going to believe you. That sounds sounds right. Yeah, okay. Uh, Master of Laws, I made Scott.
1: You know what? Just based on his interactions in our Discord, I see that. Because he's very... I also would trust him to be fair as a Master of Law.
0: That's what I mean. It's like, Scott strikes me as, okay... He's got good ideas. He's going to push to implement those good ideas. And he's going to be... I trust him.
1: And he's going to actually care about justice for people, not just law. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, not that our other patrons don't care about justice, but I feel like Scott makes it part of his, like, known
0: personality on Twitter and Discord. So... You know, he strikes me as a good dude and he's like, we should really implement these policies because they're genuinely good. And I'd be like, okay, that tracks. Yeah, that's fair. Sure. Okay. Uh, Master of Whispers was wretched. The only reason he got me a Master Whispers is my brain went like, Wretched, what do you know? And I heard in my head, I don't know shit. <laughs> you like, know that shit. if he was actually
1: the Master of Whispers, there'd be a lot more just brutal deaths. Because uh, I love Wretched, but subtle is not necessarily one of his strong suits.
0: <laughs> I know, but it just like, it clicked in my head and like, Wretched would be perfect because I can just hear, I don't know shit. His two <laughs> armies... <laughs>
1: His two armies in Warhammer are Zinch and Corn. I don't Maybe know.
0: Maybe it was the Zinch that kind of wormed in the back of my head. Like, no, he would love that.
1: Yeah. Oh no, I would just love to see him in that position. I don't know how effective he'd be, but I trust him to try.
0: Listen, this isn't necessarily about effectiveness. This is just who fits where.
1: I mean, yeah. Like, let me put it this way: if I were in the king's position, like you and him are like neck and neck for a hand of the king for me. But that's so. There's a reason why. Like, I trust him. Is my point.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh no, speaking of people that might not be the best at the job but just fit, I made Woonvog the Lord Commander of the King of the King's Watch. No, no. That, is,
1: that no, that fits. Like he's a paladin. He's a real life world like a real world paladin. He would be Sir Barristan. Like literally when I think of Game of Thrones characters, that's probably the one I think of for him. So
0: here's how my logic played out. My brain went like I feel like Woonvog has expressed his love of knights in the past.
1: Yeah, because he's a living paladin, I'm telling you.
0: And then my brain went, and Wunvog would go, I get to pick, you know, who gets to join the Kingsguard? We're going to find all the Brienne of Tarts in the realm and bring them to this kingdom.
1: I mean, you're correct, he would definitely do that.
0: So I'm like, you know what? There's nothing cooler than a king being surrounded by giant strong women. Like, you know, no, no. Wundvog has my best interests in mind.
1: No, I absolutely 100% agree with Wundvog as, as leader of the King's Kingsguard. So.
0: Uh, this one, again, this is kind of shaky logic, but stick with me. My master of ships was Chris because he's from Boston and I feel like he has a boat and he's by the ocean. So he has to understand ships better than most of my friends.
1: I, I don't have a counter argument for that. I don't
0: know what the Master of Ships really does. Like, I always forget that's a position on the small council. I feel like
1: the Master of Ships is more about trade routes and stuff.
0: But isn't that the Master of Coin, too? No, the
1: Master of Coin deals with, like, I think the actual deals. Like, the
0: taxes and the running and making... Yeah, but I think the Master of Ships
1: is about making sure that there are ships that are conducting trade to said other countries and stuff.
0: Yeah, but it also controls the fleet. And my brain was like, listen, Chris is from Boston. That means boats. He's going to have some idea of boats.
1: I... I can't argue against it, and I don't know who in our group would be a better Master of Ships, so I can't say.
0: Yeah, plus, I mean, it works. It's like, oh, it's Westeros. I, I I hired a funny-talking foreigner to be my Master of Ships.
1: I'll tell you one thing. That's the position I definitely wouldn't put Wretched in, because he's also a pirate, and you don't put a pirate as your Master of Ships.
0: <laughs> I don't know. There's been a couple times. To- like, By the way, when I say Master pirate, Ships.
1: I'm meaning it literally. Wretched loves rum and, and pirate, like... The ma- the only thing he likes more than like pirate aesthetic is cowboy aesthetic, and that doesn't apply to what we're talking about here. So anyway.
0: Yeah, and I don't trust Wretched not to sail off with all my ships.
1: He probably would, yeah. <laughs>
0: That's why he's master of whispers, is you know, he I feel like I've appeased him enough, like, alright, I'll stick around. This is fun. Yeah. Uh Master of Coin took me a while, but when I realized, I realized, oh, that makes perfect sense as a uh, Slagathor.
1: Slagathor's your Master of Coin. Does she handle all the finances in your in your marriage?
0: Yes, and I thought about like Okay, the Master of Coin has to be able to tell the king, no, we are not wasting money on that. And who better than my wife to go, no, we're not start- We're not holding another fucking tourney because you're bored. We got to make fucking taxes. No, because that was the problem with all the previous Master of Coins. They're just like, yeah, no, sure, king can do whatever.
1: No, I'd love to just see that scene of Slagathor as Master of Coin verbally tongue lashing the fucking king for, for overspending. Yes. <laughs>
0: Plus, if I'm not there, she'll keep all y'all in line. Sure,
1: I'm, I'm on board with that. Sagathor Master Coin, I'm cool with that.
0: Because I went round and round because I'm like, I don't want to make the obvious choice and make Axel my hand because that's too obvious. Yeah, But I literally couldn't think of anyone better for it, well, and I couldn't think of a better position for you.
1: I mean, I'm sorry, man, but before we even made this podcast, we made it clear that in New Sparta, you're the king, I'm the grand vizier. The equivalent in this thing is I'm hand of the king, and you're the king. I never had any ass—and also, you trust me because you know I have no ambition for the throne at all. Yeah. I don't mind being the guy running stuff behind the throne. That's me.
0: <laughs> Plus, I get you and Slygothar on a council together. That's his comedy gold— uh, yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> but I just had this thought, and like, okay, this has got to go on the record, the podcast somehow, because just again, if nothing further, then I had to share. Wretched, going, I don't know shit.
1: Yeah, I, I am the one that makes me the most happy, is, is again, I think Woundvog as leader of the Kingsguard is an inspired choice. But I, I'm on board with all your decisions. The, the, the two of Maester and Master of Ships, I'm a little iffy on, but I'm okay with your logic.
0: Yeah, no, it's just like I, who do who is the closest person to a wizard we know?
1: To a wizard. Um...
0: I mean, again, Chris is right up there because engineer, and of course, I I heard the joke in my head. If I made him, uh, you know, maester, I'd get the engineering version of. Oh, I'm not that kind of maester.
1: I mean, I I might put, I might put Chippa as maester and Donal as master of ships myself, but that's the only thing I can think of maybe.
0: No, see, there is an ancient law that says you do not let the Irish go near water. Bad things happen.
1: Really, I was just thinking that he's the one who's actually crossed oceans and stuff. So,
0: uh, crossing the Irish Sea isn't crossing oceans so much. Still more than what we've done. <laughs> I've crossed the ocean. You have? I've been to Europe. Oh, you have been to Europe. Okay, fair, fair. Yeah, but I you're the king. Where you're not. You're not going to be the master walking. of ships, king. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh no, Donald, when you listen to this. Do you know anything about ships, or should you be my funny-sounding foreigner that gets to be my grandmaster? Okay, I'm cool. Because technically Chris isn't a foreigner, he just sounds funny.
1: <laughs> when he wants to, at the very least.
0: <laughs> I know, he, he when he drinks, he turns into a Kennedy. We, we've witnessed it. True. Anyways, <laughs> on to the podcast. Yes. Hello, and welcome to Geeks with S.H.I.E.L.D.S., your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Cameron Ulrich, and with me as always is... His S.H.I.E.L.D. brother, Axel Wright. How's it going
1: today? It is... I'm on a time crunch, honestly. It's been a really stressful day. I I went into work an hour early to try to get ahead of things, and when I got to work, everything was on fire. Not literally, but that's what it felt like. One of those days. Yeah, so I I was busy all day, and then I got off work, and then me and the lady had some errands to take care of, so I actually got to this recording kind of late, which also meant I had to pick up my food on the way, and I haven't had a chance to eat it yet, so it's sitting next to me, which also means that throughout this recording, you might hear, like, ice, because I didn't have a cold drink. I've got bunch of cans of warm soda, and a and a metal cup that I have ice in, and I can't I can't silence the ice when I drink it, so I'm sorry if that gets picked up in the
0: recording. I'm just having a hell of a day. Yeah. Anyway, how are you? I am so very tired from things both big and small. Such as? Well, I mean, I can say the world's on fire and not date this episode at all, because the world's always on fire.
1: Well, it has been for at least uh, seven consistent years at this point.
0: Yeah, and I mean, uh, the other big thing is I'm still dealing with this shit with my back that's not getting better, and Mm. I'm running up against a system that's designed not to help me, and yeah. I'm sorry to hear that.
1: Well, I know that the topic today is something that is very much in your particular warehouse, but before we get to it, I believe you have a privilege you get to do.
0: I do. Our patron sound off, which this really means a lot to us that you guys still support us despite, you know, financial shakedowns of the world and the ever-growing number of podcasts. So we'd like to thank you by shouting you out by name. Our four hundred patrons, they are Pam Galley, Marquis, Chris Chittman, River Galley, Krug, Arthur Craig, Kevin Bay, Brendan Agnew, John Finnells, Kit Kenny, Seth Decker, Dona Lucy, Patrick Anderson, Carson Mel, Scott Rubin, Derek T'Kitty, and Peter Cook. And if you'd like to join that illustrious legion, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Shields. 25 cents an episode is all it takes to get access to these episodes early as well as maintaining the existence of this podcast in this ever- timeline we find ourselves.
1: By the way, we're not sponsored by anyone at all, and I don't like shill for products, but this move uh, edition of Coca-Cola is fucking bomb. A coconut
0: Coca-Cola, I love this. That actually makes a shocking degree of sense. Yeah. No, <laughs> I am tempted to cut that into a promo, but I don't want to give free advertising to Coca-Cola.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. I, it's just, it's delicious. I love coconut. I, I like Coca-Cola. This works for me, which is funny. like... Cosmic Coca-Cola, I love that one too. The Dream one was terrible, so not all good. Yeah, I heard
0: nothing but bad things. So that reminds me, fun little side story, side tangent. The second time I met Axel, I walked into a room, and he was eating half of a raw coconut with a spoon. I was? Yes, you had a fresh coconut, you were very excitedly, and you were just scooping out the meat with a spoon, playing Spyro. I don't remember this at all. Where was this? Was this at my home? No, this was Cottonwood before the dance. Oh,
1: this, I thought the dance was the first time we met. This is the second time we met? When we
0: met? We met the day of the dance. Oh. When you came out of a room wearing all white. Yeah, yeah. And I almost drove off and left you behind.
1: <laughs> hmm. I don't remember the coconut thing. I, I do eat coconut straight like that. I haven't done it in a few years at this point, but I would get coconuts. I would smack uh, holes into them drink the milk then smack
0: smash them open and eat them with a spoon yeah i totally do that no i just remember this <laughs> is met this weird dude today and the second time you know i'm eating with him he's sitting here eating a coconut with a spoon just having the time of his life like okay
1: yeah, and spyro is a great game so that that sounds on brand for me
0: <laughs> my daughter's been playing the reignited trilogy lately As yeah, she should it's good stuff Equivalently, Anyways.
1: if you can get your hands on the original <laughs> Ratchet and Clank Trilogy, that's also worthwhile for a kid.
0: Wow, so. I'm mean, She's been burning through like a lot of the kid-friendly video games.
1: Alright, we can talk about... I have literally a number of games that would work for this conversation. If that's not what we're actually here to talk about, what are we actually here to talk about, Ulrich?
0: We're taking the dust off a beloved episode format of The Warrior Corner.
1: And look, we know The Warrior Corner basically never does the numbers of our other stuff oh no the warrior
0: corner does big numbers that's why i say beloved really i thought people love our history content and it makes me feel bad that we don't do more of it but then i prep for one of these and i remember why we don't do more of these
1: why do i suddenly feel like i feel like you've told me that at least one of them didn't do all right whatever it doesn't matter if you say they're beloved i'm gonna believe you okay then never mind no the
0: numbers bear out people like the warrior corner the original one which i i don't i don't like i don't promote i think it's a hot mess that one's Did good numbers. I know
1: the main issue for behind the scenes is that Warrior Corner takes a lot of effort on Ulrich's part. Yes, he basically tries to do because Ulrich actually is a student of history to 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 a degree that we don't need to go into details. But so he wants to at least know what he's talking about to you know more than a casual degree.
0: Yeah, and I want to make sure I cover everything, but I don't want to cover too much, because otherwise it's just me rambling off facts.
1: Yeah, and the first time we did this, he basically scripted the whole thing, and it nearly killed him, so...
0: Oh, that first time was a nightmare, and I hate that episode. There's so many holes and gaps, and it feels on rails, and no. So we scrapped it, we redid it, we relaunched it with The Night, which was wildly popular, and we're back to do another one, which hopefully will continue the trend of... These are a lot of work, but they're really fun, and people generally seem to enjoy
1: them. All right, for anyone who doesn't know, and we've been rambling for a while, Warrior Corner is very simply where we pick a, a historic warrior of some, some kind, usually has some very specific connotation to a, a culture—not connotation, connection. Connection to a culture of some sort, and we talk about them. This is somewhat about, like, the actual warrior as they were, also their connections to pop culture— after our initial episode, we changed to be a little more freeform, so while Ulrich has a general kind of set of things he wants to get through about their reality, this is kind of like a loose conversation about some warrior from
0: history. Yep. And, you know, the night one was so easy, I decided to up the difficulty, and this time we're talking about the Roman legionary.
1: Which is a big one for Ulrich, because Ulrich has always been a big fan of Roman stuff.
0: I See, you say that, and it's more complicated. Period. Yes, I
1: know, but I just mean that, like, there's a reason why in our pictures I'm in Viking attire and you're in, what, Centurion attire?
0: Uh, Spartan.
1: Spartan? Okay.
0: The thing is, I my favorite period is the Medieval period, but the period that I know the most of and I've studied the most is the Classical period. And because Rome makes up a big chunk of the Classical period, you can't really study it without also studying the Roman Empire.
1: Do you know much about the Roman Empire post-break, like Constantinople and stuff? I just, out of curiosity.
0: No, my knowledge kind of peters out up until, like, the fall.
1: Okay. I was just curious. I don't
0: don't know nearly enough about the Eastern Roman Empire. Because the Eastern Roman Empire is just like, oh, we're just going to, you know, keep on having this party for another, you know, century or so. Well, plus I know the the joke is, is
1: the joke I know is that it's the not-holy, not-Roman, not-Empire, Holy Roman Empire.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the Eastern Empire just, like, rocks on, becomes the Byzantine Empire, and they're just, like, doing everything, and the Western Roman Empire's like, oh, fuck, everything's on fire.
1: Pretty much. So, anyway, back somewhat on topic. If you're listening to this and you don't know what a Roman legionary is, well, you've pro- you've almost certainly seen it in... Oh, yeah, I no... I will admit that I don't know the specific distinction between a Roman legionary and other kinds of Greco-Roman warriors. I have an idea, an image in my head that I think is correct, and I'm thinking of movies that I think are actually Greek warriors, so...
0: There's a lot of bleed over, because I love this, I said this before, and I'll say it again, the Roman Republic, Roman Empire are the Borg of the ancient world. The Borg, that makes sense. In that they just assimilate the best bits from everybody else and convert them into their own. So the
1: image in my head, and tell me tell me where I'm wrong, is a dude in, like, maybe bronze or maybe even iron armor with a lot of red, probably like a cloak of red, and, and like a helmet with like a big-ass brush-looking thing on top.
0: You're in the ballpark. Okay. Oh, and
1: sandals, of course. <laughs>
0: yes, and actually we'll talk about that as a big important part of what made them so effective
1: okay so then go ahead and give us your intro then
0: so primarily we're talking about the late republic to empire version of the legionary which is what most people imagine but real quick i want to talk about the early army of the republic and what that looked like how that worked and this is the very early days the early like rome is established as a city in a very growing empire.
1: Oh, and by the way, if you're listening to this and you don't understand the basics of Rome, I'm sorry. We're not an actual history podcast. Go find. But there are
0: so many good ones that will talk your ear off about the Roman Empire, the foundation, the seven hills, the Etruscans, everything. Yeah,
1: we're not here to give you everything. So go get a basis that was understanding of Rome. I
0: made the first time.
1: Yeah, come back after you know at least what Rome is or was. <laughs>
0: So the very earliest form of like agreed terminology for the Roman legionary is the manipular legion.
1: Manipular, like yes, that's a or wee- manipular,
0: manipular. Sorry, manipular. So also, I had a fucking nightmare trying to figure out the correct pronunciation because fun fact, the Greek pronunciation of words and the Latin pronunciation of words are slightly different, but they share root words and connections. And I was going fucking out of my mind. I said, Fuck it, I'm going to say it as I know how it's pronounced.
1: Okay, I mean, it looks like manipular to me, so... (laughs) Yes.
0: Anyways, this is composed, this is how everyone does it. It's levied citizens, like, hey, we're going to war, you need to show up and bring your shit this day to go off and fight, we're gonna fight for however long it is between harvests.
1: Alright, when you say levied citizenry does that mean like because i know rome famously rome had a senate and rome had a a society that was somewhat like citizenship based on service or something right that comes later but yeah oh so or in this early we didn't have that so this is more just like um, you
0: live within the boundaries of rome and you're not a slave
1: okay but it's still like volunteer militia at this point
0: yeah it's you're called up to defend rome and it's and they they're kind of smart and this, well, this was also the trend of the time of depending on your personal wealth, determined the style of battle that you went to and how you were used.
1: Okay. That could be good or bad, depending on.
0: Yes, that's one of the early problems they kind of run into. But basically, you know, the poorest people, they were the light infantry. They showed up with uh, throwing spears and small shields. Fair. And then these are typically the youngest guys, so mm-hmm. you know they don't have a lot, but they can run really fast, which is good for being the guys that get shoved out front.
1: Meat shields, yeah. Okay.
0: Yes, and then you know you have your medium infantry, which are you know, and then your heavy inser- infantry, and then your heavy spearmen.
1: And heavy, so heavy spearmen are the the more wealthy people because they get to. Get- this is the
0: rich old guard, and at the very, very, very top. You have your cavalry or equites, which is the people that are rich enough to have horses.
1: So the people who are rich enough to run away from the battle if it's too dangerous.
0: Also, if their horse died, they could be reimbursed by the Roman Senate. Mm. Okay. And also, interestingly enough, the Romans in this period typically fought in a three-line formation, with the poorest people being at the front and the richest being at the back.
1: Mm. Okay, the the year, by the way, because I don't think you said it, the year we're talking about here is a range of, you have listed 315 BCE to 107 BCE.
0: Yes. Go on. So the only real things that matter about this period is they're organized in centuries, and each century is between sixty to one hundred and twenty men. So there's sixty units of light infantry, or one hundred and twenty units of light infantry, one hundred and twenty spearmen. But it's organized around that number. Okay. And in each century is led by a centurion, which is the guy you're thinking of with the big brush helm helmet that you can you know see.
1: I will admit. I'm pretty sure my brain went right to a centurion from the game for honor, now that I think about it, but go on.
0: Probably. and But that's – there's two of those guys, and it's, you know, first centurion and second centurion. And they organize they're, – they're in, they're in charge of this one century. So each century is led by at least two people. Okay. I know that's and very common
1: in Roman history. It's a lot of twos.
0: Yes. Well, this is kind of what their early thing that you see that makes them great is they're trying to achieve set numbers. They have clear chains of command – They're also fairly well-equipped, but this is where we get into the Borg of it because Rome spends, like, the early part fighting with the local Italian tribes and the Greek colonies, and they kind of take on the Greek-style armor. As they would
1: call the barbarians.
0: (laughs) Well, the Greeks... Came up with the term "barbarian," and "barbarian" means is a word they use for anyone who didn't speak Greek. Because to Jewish. them,
1: anyone who didn't speak Greek sounded like they were going bar 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 bar.
0: Yes, it's a very high hoity-toity way of viewing the world of like you speak stupid, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> but anyway, only thing we'll talk about here is they adopt the scutum, which is this big, heavy, honking, almost tower-style shield.
1: Oh, okay, I've heard of tower shield. I've seen them in video games.
0: And it's just, it's really, it's big, it's effective, it covers pretty much everybody. And then three centuries, went into a mana and that's the very most basic building block of the early Roman, you know, legionary. Okay, that it,
1: takes us into the, what you have listed here, the Marian reforms and the The legion- Marian reforms. Marian. Okay, so now we're looking at 107 BCE to 235 CE. Yep, By the way, if you're listening to this and you have not caught up with science's usage of before the common era and common era, there you go. Anyway. Yep,
0: that's that's all it is. We just decided to move away from letting the Roman Catholic Church dictate everything about history. Yeah. Anyway, go on. So there's a real big problem with the legionary. There's a couple big problems with the legionary before this, one of which being you only had these men as long as they could be away from the fields. So. Okay. Your war was on a timer.
1: Well, I mean, historically, basically up until the Industrial Revolution, you just didn't conduct war in winter because... Yes,
0: but it's not even that. It's just like you have a narrow field to wage war between spring and summer, mm-hmm. between your two harvests. Yeah. Which means you can't go far from the field.
1: Because you can't have war if you everyone's starving.
0: <laughs> well, people would go, my time is up, I'm going home. There also, there was there's no standardization. Everyone kind of, you know came with what they had, so even within you know your delineations, they didn't have the unified armor. Somebody could have much better armor than somebody else. Mm-hmm. This but, is true um, of a
1: lot of a- ancient armies, to my knowledge.
0: Yes, and this is, again, we're talking about, this is what made the Roman legionary so special. Okay. But anyways, there's a Roman general named Gaius Marius who was in a long-engaged campaign fighting... Uh, Libyan rebels in what is today northern Africa. Okay, and he started looking at me, going, "This system just doesn't work. I'm going to write up a series of laws and restructure how this whole legion works." The code and ends. one of the <laughs> yes, well, yeah, we'll get there. And one of the first things he did was he decided logistics is a nightmare right now. Yeah because they're fighting the Medians, which fought very skirmish-heavy warfare. So they would attack the supply trains, and the soldiers would end up starving or not being able to get their stuff. So he said, all right, from now on, everyone carries the basics on their back. Okay. You're going to have all your tools, your weapons, your food. It's going on your back, and you're having a donkey for everything else.
1: So you're saying any soldier who's had to trudge through the desert wearing about 150 pounds of gear has Gaius Marius to thank for that?
0: Yes. <laughs> okay. And, they, were, and they, earned the, they earned the nickname Marius's Mules. Uh, that, it, that makes sense but it made your army able they weren't tied to supply lines as much okay the other thing he did was he decided we're going to make a professional army they were not going to levy anybody the roman legion is open to any citizen of rome that wants to sign up and you will fight and you will serve for 10 years and at the end of your 10 years you will be granted land to go on to and roman citizenship.
1: but the point is now they'd no longer be part-time soldiers like now your yes. job is you're a soldier
0: Yes, they are professionals, they have motivation to stay in the army, because at the end of that, they get land, they get citizenship. It's a career, is the big thing. Yeah. Now, one of the downsides of this is it shifted the Roman soldiers' uh, uh, loyalty from the Republic of Rome to the general that was going to pay for them to have their land and pay their wages.
1: I have heard how, uh, throughout history, this results in sometimes friction, Between the government and
0: a general? (laughs) Yes, because if you wanted to be a general, you had to be able to pay to field, you know, the legion. Mm -hmm. But the other thing, and he does does simple rule restructures, but the other big thing is he throws out the old system of light infantry, heavy infantry, heavy seer, and all that. He's like, no, you're all infantry. Okay. You are all the same type of infantry. You all have the same style armor and equipment and everything. Okay. So this is where we get um this is the typical roman legion this is what everyone thinks of and it breaks down in you have you know i think it's 10 men to a tent and that's that's the most basic unit and that is your 10 men that's your donkey that these are your sleeping companions
1: yeah this is a unit yeah
0: yes this is the most basic one 10 parties about 80 men makes up one century which is overseen by a centurion typically there's you know two of them again because the romans like you know doubling down and making sure there's always a spare
1: Well, also, when you have a pair, you theoretically have people who can come to an agreement with each other or figure out the best plan together, but anyway.
0: Yeah. Multiple sentries get combined into making a cohort. It says here you've got six sentries make a cohort? Yes. Okay. Then, of those cohorts, ten of them make a legion, which is the biggest amount of fighting men.
1: Alright, which theoretically, at this point, would be 4,800 men, but... According to this graphic you have here, the first cohort consists of six double sentries and 120 horsemen, making a total legion fighting strength of 5,400
0: men. Because the first cohort is where the veterans go. Okay. And again, there's a whole bunch of stuff I can get into of how the Romans, you know, fought and did their stuff. But basically the biggest part is it was standardized numbers, standardized equipment, and organized the hell and back again. Also, they knew, if they drew up a legion, they knew exactly what that was going to bring, Mm -hmm. at least in theory. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, you can see this throughout history, too. When you standardize things, it makes battle... It's an advantage. A weird advantage, uh, sometimes. But, I mean, the most easy, I think, to understand example is that if you rely on bows and arrows, you are relying on varying skill levels. But if you've got uh, guns... You've basically even the field, and then even guns themselves for a long time they were custom items, and then we had industrialization made, so no, every gun is built the same, and then oh, suddenly you have consistency so the point is consistency is
0: strong, <laughs> yeah, and that's the other big change that happens around this time is we get basically mass industrialization of arms and armor because
1: mm-hmm. well, you've like, got a whole. You've got See, a whole group of professional soldiers now you have to. Yes,
0: and everyone fights. They are cranking out swords. They are cranking out shields. They're cranking out armor. Everybody's equipped and trained the same. Now, for stuff like, you know, the cavalry, the spearmen, your skirmishers, you're not, They said, we are going to go and conquer the people that are good at this and make them fight for us. Yeah. And the auxiliaries. Yes. Because Rome learned very early on when they had their war with Carthage, they were shit sailors. Yeah. And they had to adapt to it. So Rome basically decided, we're going to have the best heavy infantry in the world, and we're going to use that heavy infantry to go get the best cavalry, to go get the best skirmishers, to go get the best at everybody else.
1: You know, there is a certain kind of terrifying logistic efficiency to, well, we suck at this thing, so we're going to go conquer these people who are good at it so we can make them be good at that thing for us.
0: Yes. And it had a two-prong effect of if you served in the auxiliary, you could earn Roman citizenship and then go on to become a legionary. Mm, Okay. And it also was a great way when they conquered, they're like, okay, we've conquered you. Now we're going to take all your sons and make them join our auxiliary corps so you guys don't rebel because we got your sons and they're fighting for us.
1: And then theoretically you're also indoctrinating those children so that they don't want to rebel because they see themselves as Roman now.
0: Yep. And the other thing the Romans would frequently do is they rarely had an auxiliary serve in their home country. Oh, so they're...
1: Basically taken away from whatever their home culture is. Uh-huh.
0: They adopt the Roman culture, and then they can go back to where they came from, but they are Romans instead of Gauls. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. I mean, it's horrifying,
0: but it makes sense. The Roman Empire is fucking terrifying, man. Oh, absolutely.
1: <laughs> I knew that. It's,
0: well, this is why I call them the Borg. There's just You look at them, and you're like, you're fucking efficient little fuckers, aren't you?
1: I've studied the Punic Wars to a little degree. I, I know.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, the Punic Wars is like this... Is, comes after the Punic Wars, because you saw how the Punic Wars went. The Romans got lucky a lot.
1: Yeah, well, as you said, they were terrible on on water. They basically got their they asses were saved by... terrible on
0: water. The armies had serious issues.
1: They basically got their ass saved by Fabius. and uh, they,
0: got their, they got their ass saved by good fortune a lot of the time.
1: Yeah. But particularly, they got two really good leaders that saved them, but anyway.
0: There's also the thing that this is like the true... What makes Rome successful is, again, their logistics and their ability of like, okay, we lost men in this battle, but guess what? We have a system in place to bring in fresh ones.
1: Yeah. Well, I know that, that it's a major oversimplification, but I've heard a number of historians say that it cannot be overstated how impactful the technology of roads were to the Roman Empire's success.
0: No, we'll talk about that in, like, the next section where we talk about what made them so effective, because I think you'll get a kick out of some of their special skills. So, eventually, near the very end, like, near the fall of the Roman Legion, they did a third reform, Mm -hmm. which is they started withdrawing the true legionaries back from the border and into, you know, home guards. And they started putting the... Auxiliaries out on the borders to protect Rome. That sounds like
1: a dangerous game.
0: It well was, but the Western Roman Empire was running out of money. There was lots of civil wars. They had a, you know, legionaries had a nasty practice of murdering emperors.
1: <laughs> yeah, but now you're also putting your auxiliaries, the people who you are trying to indoctrinate in the Roman culture you're putting them on the borders instead that sounds counterintuitive
0: yeah they move away from a standardized everyone gets equipped the same i mean that sounds like
1: a way to create a border princes. honestly yeah
0: very much so because well what rome eventually falls to is their auxilia because a lot of the you know tra- chieftains that came in and toppled rome were former auxiliary auxilia members
1: See, I didn't know that, but that makes perfect sense given what you've said.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. No, the most famous like, loss in Roman history is the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, where Arminius was a German prince who served with the Roman you know, auxilia, learned how to fight like the Romans, and then went back to his kingdom and said, Listen, I know how to get these fuckers. Here's what we're going to do. And ended up destroying three legions. What was his name again arminius
1: arminius arminius okay
0: okay yeah basically he figured out that the roman legion is at its weakest when it's on the march ah it's very effective it can move great distances but because they're carrying everything on their backs if you ambush them they can't get their shit out and mm. because it's such a long line it's you can attack one end and the other end won't know what's happening. I can easily
1: imagine conducting raids on sections of a Roman column.
0: That's so. exactly what he did.
1: Yeah. Well, another thing. Throughout history, we find that guerrilla warfare is extremely effective. And there, oh, really, fuck, yeah. there really isn't a counter to well-conducted guerrilla warfare. There kind of just isn't.
0: <laughs> no, it, it's hard to counter, but it's long and it's grinding. And I don't know. I think at some point... We may dig in to the Napoleonic guerrillas because they're really cool and really awesome. But anyway,
1: for now, I think it's time to get into what made the Roman legionary so effective.
0: Yeah, so here's the thing that you will run into if you even peek into any form of, you know, study of military history of the classical period. And by the the way, before you get
1: into that, let's make a a point to talk, because so far a lot of what you've talked about is about, like, the Roman legionary as an army and not necessarily the Roman legionary as a warrior. I know they're connected ideas, but for this next part, let's try to keep both those ideas in mind.
0: Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm going to talk about that right now. So there is, I, I call it's the myth of the Roman legion, mm-hmm. which is this idea that the Roman empire was unrivaled force. Not going to contest that at its time. Yes. Yes. But there's this weird, almost insidious idea that warps him into Superman. Yeah, which, of course, they were not. No. And this idea that, well, a Roman legionary on his own could be anybody else because he was just so good at his job.
1: Well, honestly, also, it wasn't just they had the tech. (laughs) They had the really good shit.
0: It's a combination of things. But we also got to talk about this. There's a reason fascists are obsessed with the Roman Empire.
1: Yeah, okay. I mean, there's a reason why Western civilization in general is obsessed with Greco-Roman, yes. but yes.
0: But, no, I want to dispel that. A Roman soldier on his own is not this unrivaled killing machine.
1: No. Well, a funny thing, as a quick sidebar, from what I know of anthropologic biology, which is very little... And if we have anybody who studies anthropology and or historical biology, you can correct me. But my understanding is that basically up until 100 years ago, the human race as a whole was on average smaller. Just a lot smaller than we are now because they had much shittier diets in general.
0: Well, humans have been evolving to be steadily taller over time too.
1: Yeah. So someone who, to my understanding, in the Roman Empire would have been considered like a big burly man... Might have even been my height, bigger than me muscular yeah. wise, but my height probably.
0: <laughs> no, your average legionary was not that tall. In fact, most of the tribes' people of Europe stood over the top of them, <laughs> and they were. Rome has a deep fear of the barbarians because very early on in the history of Rome, barbari, a barbarian tribe came down, sacked Rome, almost wiped it off the map.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So they lived in fear of these horrible barbarian invaders.
1: Well, I, I remember certain history channels saying that barbarians at the gates is like the catchphrase of Rome.
0: Well, they, yeah, it's, there's an irony of what many you know, people think inspired Rome to become an empire was that initial sacking of Rome. And of huh. course, the death knell of the empire is them getting sacked again by more quote unquote barbarians.
1: By the way, it's a quick sidebar. If there is any historical civilization uh, of warriors that probably does take the mantle of Superman, it would be Genghis Kong's Mongols. But, oh, fuck yeah. But that's a whole other conversation. So,
0: we're, we're de- That one's definitely on the list. From what
1: I can tell, by the way... There has never, in the history of humankind, even today, been an empire as large as Genghis Khan's. He got the largest yeah. one by size. So, But we're not talking about him right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's a whole separate Anyways, but what kind of gets ignored is, no, if you put a Roman legionary up against a single warrior from one of the other tribes, he's going to run into some problems because the Roman legionary is designed to fight as part of a group. And part of that is that big, heavy scutum shield. Yeah, the kind classic like... idea.
1: I mean, I'm sure that even the average person has seen, you know, Zack Snyder's 300, and they make a bit in it. Like, yes, it's it's historically wrong that they're all basically naked while they're going to war. They had bronze armor at the time. But one thing that movie does illustrate, and that comic illustrates, I think, is the idea of the shield covering not just you but the person next to you.
0: Yep, and that's how the scutum kind of works, but it's more of a big rectangle.
1: Yeah. Which is what creates, right, the, the, the idea of the Roman phalanx?
0: Well, it's called the testudo, and it's the big square formation that they overlap the shields, and it just becomes this big, slow-moving wall of armor.
1: Yeah, which then it's you
0: very good poke spears out of. <laughs> they didn't poke the spears out of. Oh, they didn't? No. Ironically, the Roman design was able to counter the Greek phalanx because it was more maneuverable. Oh. It could shift and move. Because the phalanx requires that everyone's shields overlap everyone else's, and you stay in that formation. The Roman design, especially with the scutum, which they took from you know the uh, Italian tribesmen, allows you just have to make sure your shield is as small a gap with the guy next to you, but it mostly covers you. So it's very flexible. It can move. It can elongate. It can expand. It it has flexibility. Mm, Okay. The scutum. Scutum? The scutum is this big giant. How do you spell that? S-C-U-T-U-M. Okay, it's got, him. got it. And that's a big thing. The other big thing is a... And this is hotly debated where they get it from, but it's largely credited to the Gallic neighbors to the north, which is the Pilum. Okay, what's the Pilum? It's a big-ass heavy-throwing spear mm, Okay. that goes through shields and people. <laughs> All right. And they kept, every legionary carried two of these, and they would... Again, this was very rehearse, they would throw one, and then charge, and then throw another one. And even if it doesn't kill somebody, it's a big, heavy-weighted spear, so it immediately neutralizes your opponent's shield.
1: It's funny, because when I think of historical warriors as mostly a layman, I'm a fan of history, but I'm still basically just a casual layman. My understanding is that the historic warrior most associated with throwing spears is uh, 10th century Scandinavian warriors, but I haven't heard about it in... I mean, I'm not surprised... That it
0: gets left out a lot, but spears are like one of the most used throwing spears, especially one of the most used weapons well, in history. In historical warfare, pole arms are
1: king because, yes. generally speaking, range is king. If I can kill them farther away from them than they can kill me, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna win. But I just mean that the idea of throwing spears specifically feels very viking specific i know i i definitely believe you i'm just saying it's funny that that's not the when i think of the image of a centurion in popular culture i'm thinking of a gladius specifically
0: yep Well, we'll talk about the gladius real quick but basically throwing spears is a big thing it's a good way to kill people it's a great way to break up enemy formations mm-hmm. which is the other part of this is the romans were this big solid formation and if they could break it up the opponents either by making them scattered or avoid getting shot or breaking their shields Now, it is a solid force meeting a scattered force.
1: Well, it's funny you mentioned that the Scutum was flexible, because I know that in the Second Punic War, one of the reasons why the Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca was able to fuck up the Roman forces so frequently is because the Roman forces relied really rigidly on the square phalanx structure at the time. Yes, because they're still
0: using the Greek model. They've adapted their shields, but they still are using that three-line formation.
1: Yeah, and Hannibal Barca just destroyed them by taking advantage of that constantly, and so it sounds like they might have come up with this scutum almost as a way adapting from what Hannibal Barca did to them well, the
0: scutum's this show they had the scutum the goes oh. all the way from early empire up Pil- pilum to... what was that word you use then the pilum pilum yeah sorry the pilum the pilum's another it's in there but this is kind of the marian reforms when he changes the structure of the legion to be individual stylized fighting forces rather than first line second line third line
1: yeah i was sorry i was just making a comment that you 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 specified, like, that the formations became very flexible. And I was like, well, it yes. makes sense they'd have to, considering that their rigid formations caused them to lose things like the Battle of canae So.
0: Yep, so they basically, so they have that going for them. The other thing you talked about is the gladius, which is maybe the only actual Roman thing huh. that in their armory. Like everything else, they kind of steal from everybody else. Now, like, the, the shield they get from the local tribes the spear they get from the Gauls. The helmet comes from the Gauls. I am
1: positive that even if you have no... If you're listening, even if you have no idea what a Gladius is, you've seen it. It's one of those yes. weapons that just shows up in pop culture all the time. It's it's a sword with a very defined shape.
0: Yes, and it's extremely deadly at close quarters. It's a real great stabbing spear, which is where the Romans... Excel because they've taken away your shield and it's this big solid mass and they've just got this spear and all they have to do is stab and it's about I think it's just over two feet long just barely
1: yeah it's but it's wickedly pointed as far as swords are considered Gladius is actually pretty short it's to my understanding it is meant to be a all right we're in the thick of it now and I'm gonna get this blade in you kind of weapon like once you've gotten past the pole arms so.
0: yes but it's a very narrow one and it can get out between the gaps in the shield wall. That makes sense. Which is a great counter for a lot of other swords of the time because a lot of these swords are kind of this is the longer swords, which so an over-the-head downward strike. Romans don't have to do that. They don't have to expose any of themselves other than this poking out motion and stabbing. So
1: does this the gladius and the, the scutum and the pilum, all this combine to this bullet point you have here of proto-combined arms?
0: No, I'll circle back to that because I also got to talk about their armor, which is really, again, a huge... Thing of they're the first army to really adapt universal armor okay. and almost a proto plate armor in the Lorica segmentum, which is overlanding, overlapping bands of iron armor mm-hmm. that covers the entire torso and shoulder. Yeah. And then a nice heavy iron helmet with a tail off the back to protect your head from getting hit in the back and a bar in the front to keep you from getting conked on the head. So they're heavy armor. They're armored head to toe. Mm hmm. I say proto-combined arms, I'm talking about the fact that they had every legion marched with the core of your infantry, your legionaries, but they also had the best cavalry they could get. They had the best skirmishers they could get. They had the best archers they could get or the best slingers they could get. They brought the best of everything with them wherever they went. Okay. But let's talk about the sandals real quick because that's a fun little thing that kind of gets overlooked.
1: There's a reason Um, we call the the genre sword and sandals.
0: Yes, they had really good shoes, and they had – everyone got shoes, which is surprisingly that doesn't happen in armies consistently up until, like, the late 1800s.
1: Well, and it, it does have an impact when you're marching everywhere.
0: <laughs> yes. These guys could march, I think, up to, like, 30 miles a day.
1: Again, that's why roads are so important because it makes marching well, easier. Well,
0: that was the other thing. They were – everyone was an engineer. That's what I was about to say. It's you a, have a bullet point a here army says Army of, of engineers. engineers. Yeah. They – would build roads as they marched hmm. like not laying down the uh you know stones there that came later but if the roman army's marching along and they want to go through a hill they're digging through that hill they're cutting down that tree they're building that bridge
1: that way the next yeah. time they come through it'll be faster
0: <laughs> exactly and every time they do it gets a little bit better it gets a little bit stronger and they were good at it they could fucking throw up bridges in no time which makes it they're, they're very terrifying in that They are, we're going to go fucking here. Other special thing that kind of gets ignored. Every night when they made camp, it was a fortified camp, Mm -hmm. which means it had a wall, had a palisade, had ditches, had gatehouses. The entire tent structure is laid out like cities in a street. So if they came under attack, everybody could easily get wherever. And the longer they stayed in camp, the better it got.
1: I feel like I've seen that in, oddly enough, images of Chinese military, too. Like setting up your tents like a city so that everything is very ordered Hmm.
0: but it works because the only time you can really attack these fuckers is when they're on the march Mm -hmm. and if they're in your territory and they think and this is the other thing they did they would set up winter quarters Mm -hmm. because usually armies have to march back home and then march back in the summer romans build a fucking fortified camp and they're there with first thing in spring that makes sense so you can't get them out and because They spent all winter building up this fort and building it bigger and making it stronger and making it better. And because they've laid down these roads, they can get reinforcements there. Yeah. Okay. They also show up with fucking siege weapons. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Mostly things that throw big, heavy rocks and sharp iron darts at people, which not something that was widely seen at the time. That's kind of how they conquered Britain. They showed up and the uh, tribes in Britain were like, fuck off our land. And they're like, bring out the ballista the fuck is that thing? Oh, shit. All right, fine. Fuck it.
1: Our, artillery, again, range tends to win battles.
0: Well, when there's not a counter against it, when it can knock down walls, when it can kill people, and the fact that they can tear it down and build it in the field and they just strip off the metal bits and do it again, that's yeah. the part that everyone kind of ignores when they talk about Romans. Like, oh, it was the training. Oh, it was the... Tech. No, it was the fucking logistics.
1: Yeah. Well, again, it's not just lo- its logistics and technology. Like, roads are technology. The 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 catapult or the ballistas of that's technology the logistics of like how to carry things is, is technology so
0: yeah no they brought it with them and they adapted the gladius evolves over time as they encounter better sword techniques the helmet evolves over time as they encountered more dangerous swords hmm. okay the, roman helmet, like the biggest innovation of the roman helmet is this big bar across the forehead and they got that because they were fighting against the tribes in spain And they have a sword called a falcata, which is this big, almost sickle-shaped sword that's heavily weighted on the end. And it said that it was just cracking through Roman helmets like an axe. Hmm. So they went, fuck, okay, put a big iron band on your forehead, that'll help that.
1: Okay, so I think that brings us to defining qualities of the Roman legionary. We've talked a lot about, you know, we've gone down a lot of roads, so what would you say are the key defining qualities? What makes a warrior a Roman legionary?
0: Uh, the big one, and everyone sees, is that heavy stylized armor that's unified. Everyone's got the same, with a clear chain of command as well to go with it. Mm-hmm. Because that's the other thing: the Romans, the higher up the ranks, they had commanders, subcommanders, the whole nine yards. Praetorians, centurions, everybody, but they were clear to pick out in the heat of battle. So if they're shouting, you know who to listen to, which is another big advantage that they didn't necessarily like. didn't have. The Romans were like. You're the professional shouty dude, you get the big fancy stick.
1: Yeah, well, that's another thing a lot of people don't necessarily think about is when you've got 10,000 men on the field and you need to get into specific formations, you're doing it with flags and, like, yelling.
0: <laughs> yes, and because they had a yeller, a series of yellers from the top to the bottom, chain of command was real clear, real effective, so they can pivot and they can shift and they can do everything. And because they spend so much time training this is easy to follow out, which is that apart professional soldiers. These are soldiers before professional soldiers existed.
1: And this is... I hate bringing it up, but these are the kind of things, especially the clear chain of command and the defensive armor and stuff you talked about, are the reason why we have what happened with Boudica.
0: So... Yeah, and that...
1: Without going into too much detail, for anyone who doesn't know, Boudica was a, a Celtic queen, essentially, and... She put a force of essentially peasant warriors against, like, I think it was like a single Roman legion. Yep. And, and it was one of the most ridiculous massacres in human history because they were so ridiculously outnumbered, but they just funneled this peasant army and murdered so many of them. It's it's actually kind of horrifying to read about oh, and it, impress at the same but time. That's
0: the other part of what made the Roman legion so effective is they never fought a battle they didn't have to. Mm. And they never fought it on the grounds that weren't in their favor. Yeah, that makes sense. Because well, again, that, that feels like of, a lesson.
1: That feels like lessons learned from Hannibal Barca.
0: <laughs> so. Yes. And again, what makes them fascinating is they're constantly learning, constantly adapting. There's so many types of helmets and armor. And that's interesting enough, like near the end of the empire, when they're getting when they're starting to divide the legionaries, they kind of stopped equipping everybody with the nice Lorica segmenta, you know, that nice banded armor, and everyone got chainmail. Mm-hmm. Which is, chainmail is not the same thing no
1: but chainmail is n- for the time chainmail is extremely effective
0: while being much much lighter and it's cheaper to produce that's the other yeah is like and if you look up lorica segmenta, it's the most iconic thing but it's these bands of iron that you're not poking through you're not slashing through you have to get between the gaps and chainmail does not provide that same degree of protection Yeah, well, it's
1: funny because uh, Chainmail, right, like, it's somewhat good at stopping stabbing. Not really a spear is going to fuck up Chainmail, but it almost completely neutralizes slashing of any kind.
0: Yes. (laughs) But it's funny to note that it took up until the high Middle Ages for us to get back to coding people in, you know suits of plate. slabs of you know solid plate armor yeah and the romans started with that and then regressed into chainmail.
1: i would say though it kind of makes sense when you've got this super mobile force that's carrying all their shit if you have an option to make them lighter it, it makes sense to take it <laughs> so.
0: it's not even so much the lighter is the logistics start breaking down well, and roads aren't as well kept up and yeah cheap money was a big thing but what made Rome so successful peak is they could get shit where they needed it to go because they made roads and they made roads in the most Roman fashion of straight line. Everything was a fucking straight line. Right angles. (laughs) Yes. Very easy to engineer. Mm -hmm.
1: Also, again, as we've talked about historically, supply lines are a huge fucking deal. There's a reason why sieges, what they really were, were not like, oh, we're going to murder you slowly over time. It was, we're just going to keep you from getting supplies until you starve.
0: <laughs> so I think it's the siege of Jerusalem. The Roman legion was besieging the city and it was up on a mountain. So they just built a big fucking ramp over the wall.
1: <laughs> that's that army of engineers right there.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that's the real secret sauce that a lot of people ignore. It's like, not it's that they were greatly well-trained or well-equipped, it's that this is a dedicated group of people. It's like, how are we going to fix that? We're going to figure something out and we're going to do it in the most blunt, direct way possible.
1: It's funny because this translates to me like, well, basically in Rome's game of civilization, they were already two ages ahead of everyone in the tech tree.
0: So Yes. And again, it's logistics, that incredible logistics system of able to get shit to the front, which is why everyone studies them and everyone talks about them. Because the other side of this is they make some hard to fucking shake once and fall like you can beat them in a battle but they can keep funneling people in and they can keep calling people up meanwhile you have to go like listen no no guys I, I know we said we're only gonna fight for six months but they're still here we gotta fight for six months longer and everyone's like fuck it let's just make peace with these guys and roman has the advantage of my only job is to fight so uh i got nowhere else to be
1: yeah, and basically from my understanding rome's eventual fall had nothing really to do with the quality of its soldiers it had to do with Mostly a lot of infighting in their how their government works and a lot of external forces. So.
0: Oh, there's ten thousand and one effects, but part of that there are
1: people is... who do their entire PhD studies on the fall of Rome. Not yes. even Rome itself, just the fall. So not covered I mean, here.
0: Yeah, no, and there is like the move away from the nice centralized Roman legion, but getting down to that most basic tent party was these ten guys had everything they needed on their backs. Or on their donkey. Food, tent, tools. They are perfectly capable to fight independently. Okay. And if they show up to a battle, they can go right into it.
1: Well, we've been talking for about 50 minutes, according to my timer. Uh, for anyone listening, it might look a little different after we edit it. But I think that brings us then to time where we discuss, more specifically, examples of the Roman legionary in pop culture or at least in modern understanding
0: yeah now real quick right off the top not gonna talk about any of the quote-unquote historically based representations of rome because they've been making fucking movies about rome and the roman empire since they were making we started making movies isn't
1: there literally a movie just called rome i don't think we're touching that so
0: yeah no there's so much uh gladiators a decent enough depiction of the roman legionary
1: and even then i'm pretty sure they're all in sandals in gladiator
0: (laughs) well the opening scene has a roman army fighting a germanic force it's more or less how they fought
1: so we're less talking about modern depictions of actual romans and more talking about modern creations that are very obviously what if
0: rome but Yes, that kind of looked at this legionary and went, ooh, I want to base my fantasy sci-fi whatever on this.
1: Well, I know you've got two right off the bat that you're very excited to talk about.
0: Yeah, obviously Warhammer fans are going to look at this and go, Ultramarines. Like, yeah, the Ultramarines, everything about them is designed on old Rome. Down to the fact
1: that their leader wears one of those fucking grapevine crown things that we associate with Roman Caesars
0: yep the fact uh it's the this is the logistics legion they've got every we know exactly how much we have we know exactly how much the yeah no ultramarines very obvious but what gets ignored is the space marines of the horse heresy also very much of the roman legionary
1: also sidebar aren't there actual like ultramarines wearing essentially togas isn't that a thing yes okay
0: just making sure and it wasn't when, they're, when they're on the crag, they're wearing, you know, togas. Even Space Marines, they wear the chitin, which is the standard, you know, at-rest uniform of a Roman legionary.
1: Okay. Yeah. But, but anyway, yeah, in, in the in 30K, the Horus Heresy, before there is essentially real divergences, those kind of things are a lot more widespread in the Astartes in general. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they're called the legions. Yeah. They have it. praetors, they have vexillas. Like... The
1: Emperor of Mankind, very obviously based. He also wears one of those leaf crown things. Yeah.
0: No, I mean, a lot of the sergeants have those nice big crest helmets. True. So, yeah, those are the big two. I feel like another one that everyone, our our fan base is going to know, is Caesar's Legion from Fallout New Vegas.
1: And I haven't actually played New Vegas, so I can't really. Oh, you on haven't? It. Nope. I've played a lot of Fallout's, but I have somehow missed out on New Vegas. Despite everyone telling me it's possibly the best one, I haven't played it.
0: Interesting. Well, Caesar's Legion. I I never went down much the Caesar's Legion story, because they're just an evil band of psychotic slavers that have you know. I know they crucify people. <laughs> yeah. It's got a lot of that. I mean, it, I there's it's a there. line.
1: There's a line repeated. I saw, seen videos where characters would just say to you, "Degenerates like you belong on a cross."
0: Yeah, no, they're just they, they're stylized. They have the stylized kind of Fallouty lorica segmenta and the big crested helms. They have the sigil of a bull on a crimson field. Their leader calls himself Caesar. They they literally are based off the ideas of. Old Rome, and I think it's kind of a subtle jab, or not so subtle jab, at fascist tendency to glom on to the Roman Empire yep. without recognizing what made the Roman Empire work.
1: Uh, well, it it as a sidebar, it doesn't help that Western civilization is super into Rome specifically, and the word fascist itself comes from. Correct me if I'm wrong. Something called the fasces, which was the rod held by the leader of uh, Rome to signify his position.
0: Yeah, it's a binding of sticks, and it you know it symbolizes the unity of the Roman people.
1: Yeah, so actual real-world fascist civilizations, and the one you're thinking of specifically, modeled themselves very clearly off of Roman civilization. So,
0: so yeah, that basically covers Caesar's Legion. I know that there they had a lot more depth that isn't in the game because of how uh, New Vegas ended up coming out. Oh, by the way. To cut back real quick, would Carl
1: Franz and the Empire in Warhammer Fantasy apply here?
0: Not really. They're a levy force. There's no standardization.
1: Okay, I don't know much about the Empire. I haven't actually played them, so that's why I thought I'd ask.
0: No, there is, like, I think it's Talia is supposed to be stylized after Rome and have Roman Legionaries in their army. Okay. Anyway, next one on your list. Uh, Clone Troopers from Star Wars. <laughs> Again, organized in legions, uniform, universal armor, universal arms, clear chains of command with commanders, sergeants, the whole works. I have nothing to add to that, so... <laughs> yeah, no, just to look at it. Uh, next one up is... This is a popular book series I'm betting you've never heard of, because I've never, I heard, never of heard, heard of
1: it. Yeah, never heard of
0: It's the Steiger's Tigers series by Mark Allen Edelheid. Okay, what have you been told about it? I actually read the first book. Oh, all right. Uh, basically... I had such a hard time with it, and I'll circle back to it. This is a book that is, what if the Roman Empire with the Roman legionaries existed in a stock generic fantasy? Okay. And instead of auxilias, they have elves, and instead of priests, they have paladins. And it's a very well-liked... There's a lot of books, and I read the first book, and it's not bad, but I had a hard time getting through it because... Obviously, the author likes the Roman Legion and wants to write about the Roman Legionaries, and he does a great job, you know, doing that. But then he'll include things that didn't exist in the Roman Legionary time, like having sergeants or having coffee or having other things. I'm like, okay, listen, you need to decide which is this. Is it Roman Legion like or is it the Roman Legion? Because you can't add things from later historical periods I mean, like, it's a
1: fantasy. He can do whatever he wants, but I get you. Know. I
0: know, but it just—it's like it, it. The pieces didn't jive with my mind. Like the first time someone rides up with stirrups, I'm like, "Motherfucker, no!" Uh,
1: now, the next one on your list, I know, is one that you don't necessarily know about. and You put here so that I could probably talk. Yeah, about Yeah, this was it.
0: suggested by uh, Scott when I asked. Like, I need to know if there's any, you know, Romanesque things in sci-fi that I haven't covered outside the big two.
1: And yeah, there is in in Star Trek the Romulan Star Empire is many things it is what if the Vulcans actually embrace their emotion it uh, but one of the main things it is and I literally saw that when they were originally conceived part of the idea was that was on paper was what if Rome never fell like what would that become and so the Romulan Star Empire is in some ways meant to be a twisted maybe not that twisted but a idea of what a space-faring future of a Rome that never fell might look like. So the Romulan Star Empire is run by a senate. They don't have like an emperor or anything. They are very bureaucratic and they're extremely arrogant. Their main personal attribute is that they literally see themselves as having the, essentially the divine right as Romulans to be the sole conquerors of creation. And so, I mean,
0: that's very Roman.
1: Yeah, and so they see everyone else as lesser beings. They are one of only two main races that have access to cloaking technology, them and the Klingons, but where the Klingons... The
0: Romulan warbird. I know that thing.
1: Yeah, but where Klingons basically kind of borrowed the technology from seemingly from the Romulans in the first place, there's a whole storyline about how they got it. I'm not going to go into that. The Romulans basically invented cloaking technology, so they have the best stealth which you could arguably translate in space to they have the best transportation because they can go pretty much wherever they want and no one can tell them no because they have stealth
0: again sounding very much akin to what we just talked about they've got the logistics
1: yeah so i'd say those are the main things that are the rome-like aspects of them also some of their clothing but that comes down to very specific aesthetic things so
0: but they don't have a standing for the roman legion
1: not specifically, because it's space battles, right? The, the Romulan yeah. Warbird is their main thing that goes... That would probably be the the equivalent, would be the ship itself, because the crew that mans the ship is like more like the lifeblood of the ship. And Warbirds travel in... Uh, a lot of times, they travel in pairs. Like, we see some individually, but most of the time when, when Romulans show up, it's in pairs of Warbirds.
0: Interesting. See, it feels like it's checking a couple of the boxes. Professional soldier, standardized arms and armor... Clear chain of command?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah.
0: Heavy armored for a ship, stronger ship?
1: Extremely. Uh, Generally speaking, one Romulan warbird is going to be more than a match for almost any other individual ship. Like Klingons, who are the other race that have spaceships, they usually go in more like... Because Klingons are in some ways a combination of 10th century Vikings and like 14th century Japanese samurai. Or maybe I'm using the wrong words there, the wrong Nerd century. yeah stuff. Yeah. Point is, Klingons are samurai, meet Vikings. And so their ships, the Birds of Prey, tend to be much smaller, but they travel in packs. Packs of like three or four even sometimes. So there's a great sequence in one episode where two Romulan warbirds seemingly get the jump on, on Picard uh, and the, his galaxy-class starship, but Picard knew they were going to show up, so he has two Birds of Prey uncloak. So they make it very clear that his... One Federation starship and the two Klingon birds of prey are equivalent, essentially, to the two Romulan warbirds. We get a loose kind of idea of power scaling there.
0: All right, and last things last, let's throw another Star Trek one on the fire. The Borg. Do they fit the mold at all?
1: No. There's, for a few reasons. One is simply, like, there's no such thing as a standardized hierarchy, because the idea of hierarchy doesn't exist in the Borg. So there's also, you could argue standardization, but that's not even really the case. Yes, all Borg come with some stuff that's standardized, but in reality, Borg will send drones with tech to deal with whatever situation needs to be dealt with. So So the, the
0: Romans are more like the Borg and the Borg are like the Romans. Probably. Yeah, sure. Well, that's one thing we didn't touch on. Part of what made Rome such great conquerors is they showed up and they're like, hey, you can keep all of your local traditions, what have you, as long as you pay your taxes to Rome and you observe the major Roman holidays. Outside that, we don't give a shit what language you speak, what religious rights you have, as long as you are loyal citizens of the empire.
1: Yeah, and that's Mm -hmm. closer to Klingons, honestly, because Borg are, we're going to assimilate you, You will become Borg. You have no choice about this. Resistance is
0: futile. Well, that's the darker side of the Roman Legion of... Now, if you resist us, then we're going to burn your sacred sites, murder your priests, and take away your children. You could also
1: argue, and I'm doing a stretch here, I admit, Cardassians fit in better than Borg does, but Cardassians are literally supposed to be, in some ways, what if Nazi Germany won and we have a spacefaring future after... Because Cardassians are sh- are space fascists. And in that regard, I mean, they are a continuation of the Roman idea. They much, they have a, uh, but they're like definitely late Rome because they're a military-run yeah. society. The, the military runs the government. They have a very strict hierarchy. Everyone is required to be part of the military at some point. Things like
0: that. I mean, Mussolini was wanted, you know, dreamed of a new Rome when, you know, his empire. And we all saw how well that worked out.
1: Yeah, but I would say again, Romulans are still the best bet. I mean, the Romulan Senate is brought up so many times. So.
0: Well, I mean, Romulans, Roman.
1: Yeah, that's not a coincidence. That's very much on purpose.
0: But <laughs> I also feel like that speaks to Western culture's obsession with the Roman Empire has kind of bled into everything. Like we, there are so many movies and other stuff that like directly references Rome and the Roman legionary, but. That's not what we want to do here. Like, you know what they're referencing because they're like, oh, the Roman Empire. This is we want to talk about stuff like it's not necessarily called the Roman Empire, but it's very clearly, you know, modeled after. The Romulans are really trying to push that rule of we're not we're not, you know, just called the Roman Empire.
1: Yeah. Well, again, like I said, from what I understand, that was part of their initial inception. That's why they're called that. It was very much from the ground up. This is Rome. If Rome never fell.
0: So. I mean, again, like we said at the top, everyone kind of has an idea of the Roman legionary, even if it kind of gets mixed in with other, you know, military units of the era.
1: Yeah, well, also remember that the way that Trek really showcases the forces we see is they're the navy, not the army. Yeah. The, the spacefaring parts of it, the people in ships are the navy. And as we have mentioned earlier,
0: Rome... Was it known
1: for its navy?
0: <laughs> nope. They 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 tried to take, just real quick, they tried to take what made them good on land and make it into ships, and that just didn't work. Yeah. Rome was also it Was originally a kind of landlocked city. The port came later.
1: Anyway, so we've been talking for, at this point, about an hour and five minutes, so it took about 15 minutes to talk about the pop culture stuff. Do you have any concluding thoughts or statements that you want to leave any listener with about the Roman legionary.
0: I'm just hoping that all of this has kind of broken the myth of the Invincible Roman Legion like as super soldiers. Because the other thing that needs to be talked about is our history, a lot of the history of these, you know, smashing Roman defeats comes from the Romans.
1: <laughs> True, they do.
0: And then I just kicked all those barbarians' asses with one hand and all the barbarian ladies were like, oh, Caesar, you're so sexy. And... Historians internalized that for decades and decades. People went like, well, hold on. Let's see if there's any actual physical evidence to back these claims.
1: Sidebar, in Hank Green's series on, or John Green's series on world history, he makes a comment that history is most commonly written by the winners, but when it is written by the losers, it tends to be very bitter.
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's why there's you did, not a lot of Roman defeats are cataloged. And, I mean, if you go and you read Caesar's accounts of the war in Gaul, every single battle was, I almost lost, but then I didn't. Hmm. Okay. And, yeah, no, Romans were great soldiers, yes, but actually it was mostly the fact that they were an army of engineers with incredible logistics.
1: Skills. I was going to say, yeah, what I'm pulling away from your, from your from what you've taught me here is technology. Like, Romans just had better technology than everyone.
0: <laughs> it was standardized. It's not even better. Like, everyone had access to this ship. But they standardized
1: it. Well, Technology to me, as an engineer, means something I think less specific than it means to a lot of other people. Like to me, the idea of laying roads is technology, for instance. Yeah. So.
0: Well, that that is a big one. Is like people were not building the roads like the Romans were. They kind of followed the natural paths, and if it got washed out, it got washed out. And Romans okay. was like no fuck that.
1: Well. I think that brings us to the end of our discussion on the Roman legionary. I hope you've all enjoyed it. I've actually had a good time. And I, I I was worried we wouldn't be able to fill an hour, but when we got to like fifty minutes and we were still, I was like, "Whoa, that time flew by." Well,
0: I was. I'm always afraid these things are going to go over. Is this is not the first draft? There's so many things I cut out, and like, I don't need to talk about this. I don't need to talk about this. No, I, don't I need to think talk we. About
1: this. I think we hit a good sweet spot.
0: These are what I'm trying to make these, and also I'm trying to make them less research intensive, which is also why I went with, you know, a warrior that I'm kind of familiar with. Like, we are eventually going to branch out and do other things, but I'm going to try and find people that not are experts in the field, but can say more about it than me.
1: Yeah, if you're listening to this and you have a, you don't have to be an expert because we don't use the E word here, but if you are a fan of some historical warrior and know a decent amount and are willing to put in some extra work and you want to come teach us about it,
0: I'm open. I would love nothing more than to have somebody who the warrior is from their culture Yes. come on and talk to us about it. Oh, my dream so... would be to have
1: someone teach me about the Maori warrior because I find them oh, so fascinating that yeah, I know nothing about it, it, them.
0: If you are a Maori or a Pacific Islander and you want to come on and talk with us about Pacific Islander tradition and culture, I'll do the history if you just want to talk the symbolism.
1: Yeah. Point is, I I know very little about them. I'd like to know more, but we're going. At I'm attention. just saying, there's a
0: reason we've only talked about Europeans so far.
1: Yeah, it's kind of what we know.
0: So, well, what, what? Also, I'm avoiding the labor of doing Vikings because that's going to be a fucking nightmare.
1: Yeah. Well, plus the number of caveats we'd have to give talking about what the Viking is is. Kind
0: of, yeah. yeah. Same thing with the Spartan. I want to go back and do redo, but there's so much gross Nazi shit and. I don't know if I want to go back to that one yet.
1: Yeah. All right. We're tangenting. Point is, we would be willing to do this again, and if this is popular, as Oryx says it is, let us know what warriors you'd be interested in. If it's one that we can do, then maybe we'll make it happen. And if it's one that we can't do, but you know a lot about it, 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 tell us.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, I will happily source part of the workload out to somebody else.
1: But I believe that takes us now that we've concluded into our suggestions of the week. Now, Oryx, I think is more actually in line with what we're talking about, so I'm gonna get mine out of the way quickly, which is not really a suggestion. I just went and saw Cocaine Bear last Sunday, the the movie, and it was okay. So if you wanna Yeah, if you wanna see a bear on cocaine murdering a bunch of people in a movie that is basically a satire of Animals Gone Wild movies, it's it's worth your time. It's it's okay. It's not great. It's not bad. It's okay.
0: Yeah, that that's about what I expected. Anyway, Ulrich. Uh, I'm going to suggest a YouTube channel that contributed to this in some of my basic research, and that is the YouTube channel Invicta. Uh, He does an incredible series of animated documentaries covering multiple um, wars, campaigns, units of history of the ancient world. He's got a really great uh, episode I would highly advise of is a 3D representation of the Roman Legion. Oh. Which shows you just how big a single Roman legion is in imb- individual units, like stretched out and what that looks like and what that would like converted to if it existed today, how long that would stretch, how many people that is. And it really helps you grasp how fucking massive this force was. Very
1: cool. Invicta.
0: He also has a great ongoing series where he details fictional units in the same manner he covers his historical units. He's got a great one on the Chaos Warriors from Warhammer and the various tribes and the various armaments those tribes bring to war.
1: All right. I personally have a axe to grind when it comes to the Iron Warriors, so... But anyway.
0: <laughs> Iron Warriors. I'm curious I got, I'm curious why you hate the Iron Warriors.
1: Because I read Cult of the War Mason, which was a book supposedly about Sisters of Battle versus Gene Sealer cults, and then halfway through, a squad of, like, six Iron Warriors showed up and made the book about them, and it pisses me off. So, anyway. Oh, uh, you're
0: going to have fun when we get to uh, Angel Exterminatus. Anyway! I think it's time to take us to an outro, work. Yep. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe. Do the Roman Empire thing and spread this far and wide so that our empire may grow and eventually will collapse. But everyone will remember us as really cool, even though we had serious issues.
1: And theoretically, you're listening to this on one of the sites that we released it on, So thank you. But if we're not on a site that you would prefer us to be on, then tell us about it, and we'll look into it. But for now, in addition to all the regular sites, you can find us on Spotify, where you can rate us, and the Fireside Alliance, where there's a bunch of other cool content creators.
0: As always, this has been Lord Commander Oric. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.